Hey everyone, and welcome to the Soylent Green podcast. At Soylent Green, our goal is to provide access to the happenings in climate change research. We want to invite you to listen as we pick the brains of our guests to learn how smart people are trying to provide answers to some of the biggest questions about climate change. My name is Alyssa Hanafi, and I'm studying soil and crop sciences at Colorado State University. My name is Levi Johnson, and I've just graduated from CSU, and I'm starting as a research associate in the Wall Lab here. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly is a professor of pedology, deputy director of the Colorado Agricultural Experiment Station, and associate dean of extension at Colorado State University. He received his BS and MS degrees from CSU and his PhD from UC Berkeley. Dr. Kelly conducts research and lectures nationally and internationally on various aspects of soils as related to global change issues. His scientific specialization is in pedology and geochemistry, with primary interest in the biological weathering of soil and studies of soil degradation and global biogeochemical cycles. His current research is centered on global soil degradation and the fundamental role of grasslands in global biogeochemical cycle. He is a member of the U.S. National Committee for Soil Science with the National Academy of Sciences. He serves as an advisor to the United States Department of Agriculture with the National Cooperative Soil Survey, USDA's National Institute of Food and Agriculture, the National Science Foundation, and several major research programs. He is a fellow of the Soil Science Society of America and the recipient of the 2016 Soil Science Society of America Research Award and a native New Yorker like me. Welcome, Gene Kelly. Thanks for coming in and talking to us. Well, it's a pleasure to yeah, be here. Thank you for here. having me. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to Colorado and the steps leading into the position you are now holding? Well, it goes back quite a while. We don't have the whole afternoon, it sounds like, right? So you want this <laughs> to be a bridge version. Um, well, you know, I, I was originally from New York and as a teenager became sort of involved in the whole Earth Day movement. And it was kind of a time when I think the planet was shifting and consciousness was shifting. And so when I was looking for colleges to go to, I just wanted to first get across the Hudson River and get out of New York. And what I didn't understand at the time is that environmental work. I was looking for ecology programs. And in those days, they didn't really have ecology programs, you know, and they, they had forestry programs and they had different sorts of things. And I, you know, wandered around a bit and applied to most Western schools. And I got into CSU in my undergraduate work and I picked as a kid from New York, I picked range science, which seemed very odd at the time. But as chance would have it, I, it was really the aspect of my undergraduate work at CSU to drag me into soil science. And so I was working in the range science department and started working as a technician in a lab in the agronomy department back in those days. So a guy named Sterling Olson and Rudy Bowman, really two really good soil scientists who worked for ARS. And I did all their analysis for them. I learned everything from particle size to phosphorus to, you know, I did every kind of thing there. And I just did that for almost two years of my undergraduate degree. And then had the opportunity to go and do soil mapping with a guy named Bob Heil, who was there at the time. And I did that. And when I graduated, I went out and worked, you know, with the, the SCS, Soil Conservation Service, and found my way back to CSU with a master's degree with Bob Heil. And I worked on a project that looked at carbon losses in soils. This was back in the 1970s and 80s. Wow. And I became very interested in the work of Hans Jenny at that time. That was a real big part of the project we were on. It was really sort of identifying the controlling variables, the things that control, say, carbon dynamics in ecosystems. And so 
I was very fortunate to work with a really great team of scientists. I was, you know, just a master's student and did an enormous amount of field work. I think I sampled soils from Texas to Canada for my work. And I got really interested in that, but I was really ready to stop. You know, when you get in your master's degree, I said, okay, I'm done. You know, it's like, well, I mean, the writing was killing me, Uh, right? More so so the writing. Right. And so I got done. And then as I finished that, I ran into a couple of people. I was ready to go out. I had a job offer up at the remote sensing center. It was in Brookings, South Dakota. I was getting ready to leave. And then I started getting calls about doing a PhD. And I was like, oh, you know, no, you know, and then I thought about it for a while. It's just something just said to me, you just need to know more. You just don't know enough yet. And again, I had been very drawn to sort of the more theoretical sort of aspects of pedology. And, you know, as luck would have it, I was asked to apply at UC Berkeley. And it's where Hans Jenny was at the time. And he was 85 at that time and went out there and met him. And we talked and it was amazing. And I just said, oh, my God, I'm coming here. I didn't have any doubt about that. Hans Jenny, born in 1899, was a Swiss soil scientist who was interested particularly in the processes of soil formation. In 1941, Hans Jenny published The Factors of Soil Formation, a system of quantitative mathematical relationships that connect the observed properties of soil with the independent factors that determine the process of how soils are formed. What a mentor was, to have. I yeah. was going to say, can we stop for a quick second and, and just define for our listeners like what pedology is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. Is. No, it's fine. Yeah. I'm talking to soil science majors. You know, <laughs> we're just sort of having an afternoon here. Yeah, but, yeah. Totally. So like pedology is, a, to me, it's foundational to soil science. And it's really the interdisciplinary aspect of soil science is, is in pedology. It's studying the origin and evolution of soils. And conceptually, the idea is if you know how a soil formed, you can predict how it's going to behave when you disturb it. And you can forecast not only over time, but over space. And that's a really powerful tool for environmental scientists. And I felt being able to understand landscapes and soils, it just seemed like right in my DNA almost. Going out to Berkeley and being with the person who sort of revolutionized soil science in many ways, created the paradigm, I just couldn't turn it down. I said, well, I'm coming to Berkeley. And then Hans had convinced me to work with a guy named Ron Amundsen. And Ron was a new professor, brand new. Well, Hans had been retired for almost 30 years or something like that. And Ron became my major professor, and it was just an amazing experience. Ron Amundsen is a professor in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at UC Berkeley. He focuses on examining the way in which the isotopic composition of soils reflects climate and vegetation. Using ratios of stable carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen in soil organic matter and calcium carbonate can reflect important characteristics about vegetation and climatic patterns. They use these relationships to learn more about past climates using paleosols, which are soils that have been buried and preserved in sedimentary rock, in order to learn more about how physiological processes in plant records give information about climatic conditions through variations in isotopic ratios in their tissues. Currently, his team is collaborating with NASA to study the biology and chemistry of soils in extreme environments to better understand the past or present of the biogeochemistry of Mars. I was able to just waltz through basic science and got deeply involved in climate change research back in the 80s. I was very interested in how soils are not only impacted by climate, but what they tell us about climate. So I did some work on paleoclimate and climate change and became very interested in the sorts of things that soils could tell us. And and I became very interested in the biological fingerprints of plants that was the word I used to use. So we would look at these paleosols and pull them apart and look at the geochemistry and the organic chemistry and the biogeochemistry 
and in a sense reconstruct what the vegetation was like over time. And at the time, it was challenging but really exciting because nobody else was doing isotope geochemistry on soils. If you're lost on this, don't worry. We'll explain an example of how Dr. Kelly uses this a little later on in the episode. I did that a bit and then got my dissertation. And then I interviewed at CSU. I had interviewed a couple of the places and then didn't get the jobs. And so I figured I was going over to France to smoke clove cigarettes the rest of my life. And, you know, <laughs> drink red wine. Bad. I wasn't actually, you know, I think that sounds very appealing to me today. Yeah. So I, I was going over there and then I had gotten the call from CSU to, that I had gotten the job in Fort Collins. And I had been here before, but I sort of had changed. You know, I had gone to Berkeley and I had seen things differently. And uh, the department at that time was a really cool guy named Lee Summers. And I was really worried. You know, I said, well, what do you want me to work on? He says, you can work on whatever you want to work on. And I said, well, how could I turn that down? Right. right. And I didn't think about money. I didn't think about it. I just said, oh, I can work on whatever I want to work. He goes, yeah, just work on whatever you want to work on. And I came here and I continued on paleoclimate. And then I started working more with ecologists. And I got involved in the long-term ecological research program, which led me to the Critical Zone Observatory. Critical Zone Observatories is an interdisciplinary collaborative research project across nine institutions with the purpose of understanding the chemical, physical, geological, and biological processes that both shape the surface of the earth and support terrestrial life. These facilities are dotted across the United States. Funded by the National Science Foundation, the CZO has been working since 2007 to critically engage the scientific community and increase understanding of the importance of critical zone science. Started working on soil degradation, and sort of building this foundational knowledge and narrative for soils. And so I was really fortunate to be, you know, doing that at a time when nobody else was doing it. Yeah, yeah. to me, pedology is like, with soils, you're obviously looking at a very small scale most of the time. Mm -hmm. And then pedology pulls it way back in a larger time scale of the formation of soils. Levi, do you remember the five factors of soil formation? <laughs> he's running. He's writing them down now. <laughs> he's sweating. Yeah. He's sweating. Uh, one second. Let me just uh, clickety-clickety-click. Five soil forming factors, I believe, were time was one of them. Correct. Uh, do you remember them? <laughs> Climate. Well, climate. Climate's yeah. another one. That's Topography. good. Topography. Topography. Very yeah. good. Uh, oh, geez. I know. This, this is, is really like bad. two semesters ago. That's okay. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It, you're supposed to remember the caloric equation, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Like if you keep one yeah. factor Oh, that's the same. right. Organisms and relief. Right. Yeah. You got it. Bingo. Yeah. High five across the room. Very good. Yeah. Thank you um, for the mnemonic. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's really interesting because it's almost more like thinking about it geologically. Yeah, it gives you the deep time perspective, right. you know, which is what Yenny had always talked about, was that to really understand how a soil is going to behave, you need to understand how it was conditioned. How did it form over time? And that allows you to sort of assess the resiliency and how dynamic a system will be upon any sort of a disturbance and in the Anthropocene. That's the whole thing, right? And just to give our listeners a little bit of context, Hans Yenny is like the godfather of pedology. His book was our textbook for our pedology class. Yeah, he was quite, incredible an, stuff. quite an incredible <laughs> scientist and human being. And Ron was amazing. He still does great things. But I'm very fortunate. And I think it's really about mentorship, you know, which is what I think CSU does a pretty good job of mentoring our students and stuff. But I had Absolutely. really good mentors and I don't think I'd be here without them. They were really foundational to what I was doing. But it gave me the opportunity to study chemistry, physics, biology, archaeology, ecology. It's all sort of there, you know, right. and you can sort of go in almost any direction. You said you were doing carbon isotopes. What were you looking for? Well, early on, we were doing stuff like 
trying to figure out if there were sort of grasslands versus forests. And so when I worked in paleosols, there was a hypothesis that Lucy Ostropithafarensis had sort of left trees and ran out Bless into you. savannas, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds of right. Lucy Australopithecus is the 3.2 million year old human ancestor. Lucy is the nickname for Australopithecus afarensis, a partial skeleton that was discovered in the Afar Desert of Ethiopia in 1974 by an international team of scientists led by former museum curator Dr. Donald Johansson. When the partial skeleton was found, it was the oldest and most complete early human ancestor ever found, with 40% of the skeleton on Earth. Lucy has served as an important reference that has expanded researchers' understanding of the morphology and anatomy of the earliest human ancestors and increased our knowledge of human evolution. Lucy had neither a funnel-shaped, which is more ape-like, nor barrel-shaped, more human-like, ribcage. The shape was kind of an intermediate between humans and apes, which corrected the earlier perception that the earliest hominins were more chimpanzee-like. And so there was an idea that the climatic change really resulted in vegetative shifts that sort of changed the whole ecology of the planet. So I worked on that and I did oxygen isotopes. I worked on almost every isotope. It was like, you know, the old saying was if when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You yeah. know? So we were trying to solve everything with isotopes. But it was a useful tool at the time. It's been used extensively around the world now. Still but, is. Yeah. And I worked a lot on carbonate minerals and then phytolites, which are plant fossils. And I worked on those for a long time. And I'm still sort of embedded in that in terms of what my students do and stuff. I want to interject for a second to talk about phytoliths, which are really cool. The term phytolith means plant stone in Greek and is credited to the German natural historian Christian Gottfried Ehrenberg in his 1854 textbook Microgeology. Phytoliths are tiny silica particles between about 5 and 100 microns formed in plants and used by researchers to glean information about past climates and environments. This doesn't work in all cases because the phytoliths in some plants degrade faster than others and in some cases don't form at all, leaving them underrepresented even if they make up the majority of the habitat, as apparently is the case with some sedges. Dr. Kelly has authored a paper where it was determined that the use of stable isotope ratios of carbon locked within phytoliths could be used to approximate things like organic carbon content and paleoclimatic and environmental conditions. Without getting into the chemistry too much, stable carbon isotope ratios can be used in this way because plants take up carbon dioxide with disproportionate amounts of carbon-12 versus carbon-13, which indicates plant productivity at that time and can be used to determine plant types, either a C3 or C4 plant. And I'm sure as you remember, carbon-12 is just a normal carbon atom with six protons and six neutrons. The carbon-13 has an extra neutron. As usual, we'll post links to articles and resources if you feel so inclined to nerd out later on. Full disclosure, some of them may require an educational institution login or something similar. We need more free exchange of information in the case of research, in our opinion. But that's another discussion entirely. But um, yeah, and you know, they're powerful tools. And like I said, you know, when soils evolve over time, the plants leave fingerprints all over the place. And we just, it was like we were like almost detectives. You'd go back and try to pick up the fingerprints. Yeah. I'm also very interested in the idea of the origin of soils, like we're talking about here, and the processes like behind their formation. Mm -hmm. Would you mind illuminating us as to what formation factors are of the most interest to researchers or, or to you personally? Well, I mean, if you back up, there were these ideas of Yeni and others, Tokachev and the predecessors of Yeni, they called them conditioning variables, right? That's kind of the key. So you have the parent material, which is the geologic material. And that's really relevant today with people looking at 
water relationships in carbon, that we know that things like texture and the ability of carbon to be stored in soils and all that is really, in a lot of ways, driven by the geologic material. Climate, of course, is really important in terms of the sort of the weathering of soils and things like that. Atmospheric inputs, we, we have a big study now on dust, looking at dust inputs into systems. Relief is important. This idea that topography, and more so like in a place like Colorado, just thinking about north-facing slopes versus south-facing slopes in the mountains. Those Makes a huge of, difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the soils are dramatically different. The yeah. ecosystems are different. Like an alpine forest versus right. a desert on one mountain. A real quick diversion on the dust comment yeah. there, because I had also read another paper that was you were authored on there as well. It was taking place in the Fraser Experimental yeah. Forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the implications for the Colorado Plateau of this oh. translocation of dust? Okay, we just want to stop here for a second and give a quick background about this study in the Fraser Experimental Forest, the methods of which are really fascinating, albeit a little over my head at times. Remember, we're not experts either, and learning is a continual process, especially in a system as complex as soils. Dr. Kelly's team chose four different catchments in the FBF, with each containing two catenas for a total of eight. Each catena consists of the summit, which is the top of the slope, shoulder, back slope, and foot slope, moving down the slope from top to bottom, respectively, giving researchers 32 sites in total. Each of these sites contain mineralogically similar parent material. It's important to keep as many factors the same as possible when trying to isolate the effects of one input. This method is used to understand biogeochemical weathering of parent material, deposition and transport of nutrients, and a host of other factors affecting soil characteristics. What they found was that the summits received the most calcium deposition from dust, with gains being highest near the soil surface and declining down the profile. And while only five of the sites occurred in alpine environments or above treeline, the summit consists of a mostly flat or gentle slope. Remember this dust is carried on the wind and deposited with it or by rain and snow. In the latter case, trees intercept the snow, especially heavily canopied ones like pines out here in the west. This interception can slow the movement of the dust and other inputs to the ground, and even delay its movement to another location should the snow sublimate, which means it goes from solid to a vapor state, a common occurrence in arid and semi-arid environments at high elevation, leaving the dust behind to be blown away again by the wind. When the dust does reach the ground, it must ultimately be incorporated into the soil by mechanical action, like the mixing of organic matter by animals on the forest floor, and later into the soil by organisms like earthworms, ants, termites, and other ecosystem engineers. If the dust reaches the ground just before heavy rain, it can run off to lower elevations, which might be why the shoulders at these sites were found to contain the next highest input to calcium. I should note that there was heavy variability in these results. As an aside, in some cases, dust was shown to carry pathogens that can affect human health as well. A paper by UC Riverside's postdoctoral researcher in the Division of Biomedical Sciences, Mia Maltz, concludes that factors like land development type at the origin of the dust and drought conditions potentially affect human health, biodiversity, and food security. This can compound with our already tenuous management of ecosystems in the face of climate change. The commodification of natural resources admits unprecedented drought and other changing conditions could spell drier, unstable landscapes, which exasperates susception to wind erosion and creates a positive feedback that promotes more dust formation and movement in the future. Well, yeah, we've done some work early on in tropical systems and 
you go out to tropical systems and you see these gigantic forests growing, and then you look at the nutrient analysis, then there's not no nutrients in the soil. And you're saying, mm-hmm. well, it can't all be in the organic matter, right? So we had hypothesized there was a theory at one time by a fellow named M.L. Jackson that the dust from the Gobi Desert had a huge impact on North America and in the Hawaiian Islands and places. And we started tracing the dust from those places. And this was pre-satellite data. So we were looking mostly at geochemistry. And a fellow by the name of Peter Vertusik did a really cool study where he basically was able to fingerprint the dust that was going into the Hawaiian Islands from the Tibetan Plateau. And the phosphorus that was coming from the Tibetan Plateau was fertilizing the forests in Hawaii, wow. which is an incredible. So yeah. you think about that, about the connectivity of ecosystems, you know, globally. So I view dust now and, and back then, it's a connector. So when you look at Colorado, we had this project up at the Fraser Experimental Forest with the U.S. Forest Service, Chuck Rhodes and those guys, and great group to work with. And it's like you just waltz around up there and come up with ideas. And so the student of mine, Robert, said, you know, look at all the dust on that snow. He said, do you think there's any of that in the soil? I said, well, we probably can look. So what we found was 50 to 60% of the calcium being used in that system came from outside the system. It wasn't from the paramaterial. So it was kind of really interesting. Yeah. And then also I've read a few papers now that are looking at the effects of agricultural dust in eastern Colorado specifically and its effects on alpine forests and the continental divide and implementing things like phosphorus. Well, there is a bunch of people, I think Jay Hamm and Jill Barron did quite a bit of work on that, where they found that the nitrogen coming from eastern Colorado was impacting. Which I would never even consider. (laughs) It was odd, you know, because you thought it was so far away. But it just shows you, when you think of soils and you think of the distances that the dust travel, when we did dust out in eastern Colorado, we got samples from the Gobi Desert. (laughs) So it's pretty incredible. It's kind of the cool thing about soil. So when you get back to those soil-forming factors. Gene quizzes us on the five soil-forming factors but I wanted to take a moment to define these factors for you to give some context. The five soil forming factors can be recalled using the acronym CLORPT, which stands for Climate, Organisms, Relief, Parent Material, and Time. These five factors are said to be sufficiently independent of any system which they are used to investigate, though decidedly more so at smaller scales. However, some systems, like rainforests, can affect climate locally by creating more rain due to their potential for high evapotranspiration though they may still be affected by regional and global scale factors as well. Each of these factors in this model are assumed to be at time zero, or starting from the beginning of soil formation. Climate consists of things like rainfall, temperature, and humidity. As Dr. Kelly points out, organisms were originally considered to be animals, plants, and other biota, including humans. Now humans are considered to be a separate factor that exert a larger control over the overall system because of our ability to affect such large-scale change in our global environment mainly through the burning of fossil fuels, agriculture, development, and industrialization. Relief is simply the topography of a given system, which can change dramatically within a site, and includes sub-variables like topographic position, slope, and proximity to groundwater. Parent material usually refers to the underlying bedrock, but can also be the scarred soil of a burn area directly following a fire. And the last factor is time, which is the independent variable that, while it doesn't determine anything explicitly, implicitly plays a role in the formation of soil simply by passing. Freshly erupted lava flows that have only had a matter of few decades to form are not as well developed as soils hundreds of thousands of years older that contain a deeper profile with distinct layers called horizons. A well-developed soil contains all or most horizons, which are too numerous to list here, but generally consist of an organic layer, topsoil, alluviation layer, subsoil, parent material, and bedrock. 
that's the dynamic nature of it, right? Is you can sort of tease out these different aspects of it. And of course, the most complicated one is biology. I mean, the biotic factor is the most complicated because biotic at that time, Yenny, in the early versions of state factor analysis and equation, he'd lump biota together. So that was humans, animals, plants, microbes. And then they teased it out later into, you know, human factors. But the biology is a little different, right? Because it is so many, like Kelly Wrighton's work, it's like Pandora's box, man. They open that up and now you don't want to know what's in there, Right. right? I mean, To hear more about soil microbiology, check out our very first episode featuring Dr. Kelly Ryan. And it changes so quickly from area to area and then from depth. Your whole microbiome could be different. And what that does is it forces us to look at this sort of living thing, this soil as this living thing, and it's conditioned by all these things. But I view soils as like kind of this gigantic biological buffer, right? It's really what it does. And it buffers the climate and it buffers water dynamics, it buffers temperature and, you know, all sorts of things. And so there's so many values to soil, but like one of them is the scientific value is amazing. I mean, the kinds of things that we can do with soils and what we can teach about soils and, you know, all those things. So it's a remarkable system to work with. And we're just finding out about it. We still have a lot of basic work to do with soils. Yeah. I mean, our last podcast was with Ho Sway, where we were talking about soil viruses. And that is just a whole new topic that only few papers have been written on. So that's a whole nother layer of the microbiome. I want to take a minute here to relate this part of the conversation with something I said in our episode with Dr. Jim Ippolito. I mentioned that I view the soils as a huge chemistry experiment that has been going on for a long time. While the health and productivity of soil systems boils down to its chemical potential, I want to clarify that there is a biological element that really makes that potential possible. For example, in our episode with Hosue, we mentioned that soil viruses could be putting pressure on bacterial communities, which in turn are largely the organisms responsible for plant nutrient availability. However, plants themselves can influence their rhizosphere or root zone by exuding compounds meant to attract or deter soil organisms. See our episode with Dr. Steve Fonte for more on one of plant's best friends, earthworms, who are also known to create healthy, well-structured soils, which directly impacts plant productivity. I feel like most people interested in this topic have heard of parasitic nematodes that can destroy crops. In healthy, biodiverse ecosystems, these populations are kept in check by predatory nematodes and other organisms. Yet another example of how keeping crop biodiversity low can be detrimental to the ecosystem as a whole, where we might see as a consequence what we mentioned earlier about the creation of erosive and dust-promoting conditions through the loss or reduction of native habitat. And while we just heard about some of the benefits of dust, too much could spell disaster for the health of humanity, not just in air quality. Yeah, yeah. The nice thing is in pedology, you get to dance with all those people. Right. You know, so it's kind of cool. You're like the yeah. conductor in the orchestra. Yeah, you get basically. to do big picture stuff. You walk yeah. around sample soils and travel all over. You don't <laughs> have to do stuff. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so, I mean, that's one really good part of it. Like, I've gotten to travel around the world and been to just incredible places. Just to Where have stuff. you traveled to? All over North America. I've worked almost everywhere. I've been in Central America. I've been in South America. Did a little bit in Europe. I did some work over in Russia. Worked cool. in Siberia. Worked in Africa, worked in Vietnam, Thailand, New Zealand. Never gotten to Antarctica yet. I'd like to get there, but Diana hasn't really given me that task yet. So anyway, I've been very fortunate to work in, I was in China, worked on the Yellow River. Oh, wow. Yeah, Wardo's Plateau. What's one of your favorite places you worked so far? I, you know, I have to tell you, I love the San Luis Valley in Colorado. Oh, yeah. I just got drawn to that place. And so I've been globetrotting and very fortunate and lucky to be working with 
great people all over the world. It's kind of where I always get drawn to. Yeah. I just kind of like it. It's so diverse. It's and a very just a unique really, ecosystem. Really cool place. Yeah. That, that was yeah. actually my intro to Colorado as well. I first drove up from down in Texas, well, Florida, but then came up, you know, from the south on 25 and uh, went over to the Great Sand Dunes. I was just like, what is this strange yeah. landscape yeah. with no, snow capped mountains and, yeah. and uh, sand dunes yeah, and, and surfing <laughs> on the dunes? Well, I mean, the other thing about the San Luis Valley is, you know, right in between the San Juans and the Sangres. Yeah. And, New Mexico to the south, and it's just, it's incredible. And, mm-hmm. and it, the soils are just amazing down there. I mean, that's my favorite locally. I really fell in love with New Zealand. It's really incredible, Ooh, too. Yeah, and I love good. Africa. South Africa was amazing. Yeah. I'm planning so a trip to New Zealand in January. Nice. nice. Oh, it's great. So how did you end up working then for the National Ecological Observation Network and okay. also the USDA's Agricultural Research Station? Sure. So I, you know, I was on the faculty here at CSU, and... I think I did a pretty good job being a professor. And then they sort of asked me to be department head. And I got the job. I applied and everything. And I did that for five years. And that was really enough for me. It's a tough job. <laughs> it's, I was telling somebody, it's the hardest job on campus. There's yeah. no doubt in my mind. And so I did that. And it was really fun because I really got to see what other people did. And, you know, outside of soils, I got to work with crop scientists and hydrologists and everything. So it really gave me a, a really strong sense of how good we were at, at CSU. And then I was asked to apply for a visiting scientist position at NEON, the National Ecological Observation Network. And NEON is a project that was funded by the National Science Foundation. And it's a, it was like a half a billion dollars of infrastructure for ecological research. And it's really driven around climate change. It was sort of the idea was to establish an observatory to look at how ecosystems change across the entire continent. As Jean mentions, the National Science Foundation's National Ecological Observatory Network, or NEON, is a continental-scale observation facility operated by Battelle and designed to collect long-term, open-access ecological data to better understand how the U.S. ecosystems are changing. The NEON program is the first life science project to be constructed solely with the National Science Foundation. As early as 1999, ecologists and biologists were meeting to discuss a need for a biodiversity observation network. By 2000, the idea had developed into a more comprehensive ecological observatory network that would address continental scale questions. Ideas for NEON officially began in 2000 with a series of workshops that continued until 2005. The initial plan for NEON was completed in 2006. After the management of the NEON program was contracted to Battelle in 2016, construction of the observatory was completed in early 2019. The completed observatory includes 81 field sites and an airborne observation platform, as well as the information infrastructure needed to gather data and metadata from sensors and field sampling, ensure data quality, process the information in the data products, and deliver those products to users via an online portal. This open source network is truly unique. Quantifying ecological processes over time and large spatial extents requires a complex spatiotemporal sampling design. The observatory strategically located sites across the U.S. to capture high-resolution, airborne, remote sensing data from various ecological and climatological conditions, and then monitors and records conditions at varying timescales from multiple data points per second to multiple data points per year, and then has the capability to calculate statistics and uncertainties for even wider time ranges, such as 30-minute, daily, monthly, yearly, and post all of this info on their website for anyone for free. And the continent's the key thing. It's like a big scale thing. So everything is designed in terms of 
monitoring the continent and, you know, how the planet is breathing and all that. And so a lot of us at CSU were involved in the early design of NEON before it got implemented. But anyway, I was asked to apply for the job and I got the job. And then as a a sabbatical, I was going to go there for two years. And within a couple of weeks, there were congressional hearings. Um, What'd you do? (laughs) Yeah, I showed up. I was like, you know, the Darth Vader. I came in and they were $80 million overspent. Oh, wow. Yeah, small amount of money. And so I was asked (laughs) to sort of take the reins, you know, and I didn't have to figure out the money thing. I had to eventually. So I hired people. I was able to do stuff. But I stayed on there as the chief scientist and as the CEO of the corporation. And I can't balance my checkbook. And I was the CEO, right? So (laughs) the chief scientist thing was okay with me. And I was really asked by the National Science Foundation to continue moving ahead with this, like just get it built, get the science community involved. And I did. And I, I called in chips. I had friends had people come and work with me and everything. And I navigated the project through to a new management entity, which was Patel Memorial, and that came on after two years. But it was a pretty challenging period because I had no experience. This was, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars a year in grant money. So I was really running a small university. It was great. It was right in Boulder. But I was able to really sort of help, I think, in a lot of ways, keep soil science on the, the forefront of what they were doing. And they just said to me, we don't really care what you do, but just do something that's going to keep this moving ahead. And the nice thing about NEON is it's working on some level now. This is the first full cycle of NEON science coming in. And it's open source data. So everything you can imagine is available online. You can just go in and look up anything about soils. I think and, that's incredibly important. Yeah. And I think, well, that, you know, well, that's important. the way science is going, right? right? In other words, that the idea would be that you wouldn't have a student go out and sample the soils. NEON will sample them. So if we have a project now looking at the dust inputs and I'm using three neon sites and they're making the collections for us. We don't right. have to do it. They do it. They ship them to us. And it could know? just be used for anything. I mean, I was taking a look at the website. Even if you're a citizen concerned about a certain area that you love, you can access this data. You don't have to be yeah. a researcher. It kind of extends it to more inclusive citizen science, which I think is yeah. Again, really important. That was one thing I learned there. I didn't really go in thinking that way. You know, you're thinking after being a department head, you would be that way. But when I was there, you know, there were very strong orientation toward inclusivity. Back in, this was, you know, eight or nine years ago, educating the public and citizen science was big. You know, the idea of the phenocams and phenology networks and things. And it gave me a lot of really good ideas about the kinds of things we could be doing in agriculture and things, you know, in terms of getting our farmers more engaged. You know, our farmers are our best scientists, right? But how do you get them engaged? What kind of projects do you bring on board? So it worked out great. And then I left that position to come back to CSU. And I was on the faculty when I was at NEON. So I was back out of the department head gig. Then I was asked to apply for the experiment station director's position or the deputy director of the experiment station. And I was really happy at NEON and I had actually got signed another contract. So I was going to be a CSU faculty member paid by NEON. And then the dean at the time, Dr. Menon, had asked me to help out with the experiment station because of my experience with research and knowing field work and all that kind of stuff. So I got involved with the experiment station. I've been involved now for like six years now. And I work with Dr. Pritchard, who's the director and the dean of the College of Ag. And I have the privilege of working with 10 research centers around the state. And the people that work there are just amazing. And it's for somebody like me, it's really good because I, I like going out to the field and I yeah. go out all the time. Yeah. And, you know, we're out in the field all the time and, you know, we have great people and, The challenges now with climate change and with the food production systems are many. And these are people that care really deeply about what they do. And so it's kind of changed my perspective. Don't get me wrong. I I think for soil science to advance, we need basic research. I'm I'm still a proponent of that. And I think I've become too distracted with things sometimes with sort of things that are going on now. But I like the idea of thinking long view, long term, 
and we have people at these research centers who've been doing this for over like 70 years. They've been doing research out there. So there's a real commitment from the university to keep these places going. So I've been lucky. We've been able to get money to renovate facilities, upskill our staff, put in new sensors. Right. There is a pretty large sensor out there, right? That's doing some cool measurements. Can you go into a little detail about what's going on there? Yes. We have nine research centers around the state, and they're all in really biogeographically, like the San Luis Valley has a place. We have a new campus over in Grand Junction, the, the Western Colorado campus, and that has three research centers, and that's the Organic Research Center. We have a water center. And we have pomology, you know, for fruits. Then in the eastern part of the state, we have a livestock unit out in Sterling. We have the Ardeck up north of town, which is crops and animals. And then way down southeast, we have the Plainsman, which is all dry land. And then the Arkansas Valley, which is mostly produce. But we have these sites instrumented. You know, we monitor climate, soil moisture, soil temperature, biological invasions, all of those things. And we really do work as a network. And the big move we've made now is we're opening up a brand new research center in Denver which will be focused on urban issues with food production and environment and all those things. That's and so Yeah, that's down at the New Spur campus. And so we're going to be opening up that center. The building is open, but we're working on the experiment station and things. We'll have it, we'll have it staffed by the fall. Wow. Yeah. These like towers that, you know, are, well, towers, I, I was just going to say, is that the same kind of stuff that you're using in these other research stations yeah, well, we, affiliated we, with CSU? Well, the, yeah, the technology is about similar. I mean, the idea is that one of the big components of NEON was what they call eddy covariance measurements, which is really something right. like Jay Ham could tell you better, but it, it's monitoring the breathing of the planet and how much carbon is being absorbed and how much is being released, right? And so you measure that at scale, right? That's different than taking a soil sample. And so the theory is that this is a continuous measurement that's going on. And we do this not only at the NEON sites, but at our research centers as well. And the idea there is, so somebody might ask, are soils storing carbon or releasing carbon? That's a really hard thing to do, right? And what scale do you do it at, right? right? So these towers give you the power to do it at a different scale than just a shovel full of soil, right? Do they take physical samples or? No, the the towers are measuring gas fluxes and continuously. The the idea of taking samples is still very important because that's what most of our farmers do. But that's a hard way to sort of scale up to, you know, say, well, we're really fixing a lot of carbon and we're not. But the eddy covariance thing, it's a really cool thing for the NEON Observatory. They have meteorological measurements. And if you think about it, if you're sitting at your computer, you can just pull this data down and you can start playing with it. And we're trying to develop the same thing with our research centers. And we're really focused on a lot of the soil health stuff now, particularly soil water is a really big deal. So we're really trying to sort of ratchet it up on how we're measuring soil water. It's the master variable for things, specifically in water limited systems or in systems in the West. And so- That are only um, becoming- Drier and hotter. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real challenge for us. And so- the research centers themselves are really almost like a platform for professors to come out and work and scientists. And we work very closely with the Natural Resource Conservation Service, BLM, Forest Service. You know, we work with all those agencies. And so I have a really good gig. I get to travel the state. I work with great people. And I sort of become much more aware of our stakeholders and farmers. Like, you know, I was sort of like this researcher from Berkeley, you know, out here just doing all this high-end stuff. But having been out with stakeholders and stuff, I've sort of become much more aware and of the challenges that we have facing us. And these are the people that are on the front lines. And it sort of woke me up one time when somebody said to me at a meeting, we need to fix more carbon. And somebody said, who's the we? It's not me, <laughs> yeah. it's them. In a lot of ways, we had a blind eye to what our stakeholders were dealing with. So I like working with them. I think they trust us. And what our challenge is as scientists, I mean, not only pedologists, but everybody, is to hand them the tools that are gonna allow them to sort of continue to do what they're doing, which is 
providing nourishment for the planet. But food is becoming central to everything we do and it's infrastructure. I mean, it's stuff now that we have to do serious investments and take a serious look at the way we're doing things. And then at the same time, maintain the health of our soils and our planet, you know, so we're under- With a growing population. With a growing population. And the issue is that it's not a simple challenge. When I saw that movie, I said, well, it is an optimistic movie. It's fine to have that. And I'm an optimistic person, but the reality is this is a wicked problem. You know, it's going to take decades to solve this problem. This is not going to be solved in one administration. And the problem is that we don't have the politicians and I don't think we're doing a very good job with climate change. We're not doing enough, that's for sure. we're not doing it. I mean, we just yeah. keep saying, well, it's going to get better and we're going to do this. But the reality is this problem is about physics. Right. And so physics doesn't wait. We can't like sort of gradually work with physics. Physics goes in one direction. We've got to sort of adapt to that. But I think that that's really one of the cool things about soil science is that it really is foundational to almost everything, almost every problem that we have in our agricultural system sort of relates to the soil in one way or another. You know, I, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording about having more urban agriculture. Yeah. And I just wonder if maybe you could speak to that and maybe tell people any kind of research that you've been doing or... Yeah. You know, when we were first thinking of working down at the Spur campus came to be, there was this idea of what is the College of Ag going to do down there? And at that time, we had actually started the soil survey for Denver. There had not been a soil survey of Denver. So we had our students down here mapping soils, Ryan Taylor, a bunch of other people doing a survey of Denver. And it's urban systems are different, right? Because the questions are different. You're not asking anything about food production. It's mostly about Lawns. It's hard to find something that hasn't been manipulated uh, too. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So you really don't have a benchmark, right? Yeah. You're, you're looking at sort of very different systems. So it took us a while to develop sort of the metrics and the kinds of things we were looking at. And I got very interested in working in Denver. I just came upon all of these small producers in the city of Denver and adjacent to Denver and grow houses and vertical gardening and all of these things and green roofs. And, you know, reading the literature, there was a I guess, an aspiration that, well, you know, maybe, maybe these urban systems could be retrofitted for producing food and really make food infrastructure, like make it so that people could walk to their food, right? And they do this in Europe and other parts of the world. Oh, yeah. And the challenge for CSU is when we started building this campus, the rural people saying, are you never going to feed the planet growing food in Denver? And I said, well, that's not the point, right? The point is to educate the public on food, to provide opportunities for those communities, the communities that could use assistance in terms of economics. It's more of like a local solution. Yeah, it is. And it's very context-based. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't, it's not one size fits all. Yeah. So the system that you use in Denver is really different than the one you use in Brooklyn, New York. Sure. And it's really different than one in Nairobi or some other place around the world. But I think the potential for innovation and technology is there, right? Because you have power, you have water, you have infrastructure, you have people, you have transportation, it's all there. Right. And so there is a warm, fuzzy feeling going, yeah. God, if you could just get this all to work. It seems and, like it's like a logistic retrofitting problem. Yeah. Think of the complexities of our energy system, right? Like in other words, like why can't we electrify the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like Scott Denning would say, it would only take 1% of the global GDP to, right. to electrify the whole world. They put plumbing in all over the world. Why can't they do that, right? Yeah. Well, think about agriculture. I mean, is, is there something equivalent to that where we could retrofit and or upgrade all the agriculture, but not have our farmers suffer about it? Let's put serious investments in irrigation systems that are high efficiency, that, you yeah. know, electric tractors, electric truck, that kind of stuff. That could easily be done. But the urban system is interesting because, I mean, you're right in the grill of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go down there. We used to go out and sample soils in Denver. And it'd start crowds, like you'd be on the corner, you know, and if people start getting Freaks. around. Everybody oh, gather they, around, they're who, in a hole. Yeah, and, and what the worst part is that, well, one of the funny stories was we had gotten down there. And as you can imagine, you know, if you're living in Fort Collins or something, somebody comes out and starts digging on your lawn. You're going, dude, you know, you're going into my cable TV. Or, right, you know. right, right. So we had to get a lot of permitting done. 
And it really took a long time. So we had gotten this idea that we'll go down to Denver because, you know, at the time, what Chancellor Frank would always say, well, CSU's Colorado's number one choice. And <laughs> we have more alumni in Denver than we do, right? Yeah. So we wrote a letter to the alumni and we said, hey, we're doing this soil study. Does anybody want to help? participate we got like thousands what? of people yeah nice. good so, on you yeah go yeah, rams right yes. and so we were able to do all of our sampling with alumni wow yeah and you know probably you know kind of the best property of course the csu graduates right so anyway the, that's supposed to be a joke anyway but the idea is that uh, we were able to work with people but the funny thing is when you go out we do a really good job man it's like you wouldn't even know we were there sure. if you hadn't been out there and then it was always somebody that was like Oh, Dr. Kelly, I had your class like 20 years ago. And then we start talking about Hans Jenny. Took a little like, longer. You know, <laughs> Took us like an hour, four hours for every site. But it was really a great experience. And what I became sort of interested in was the interest level of people. Like there really was, a, you know, really interested in soil. Like, I mean, they would ask us about what does that mean? What does the color mean? What is that? I saw this in the back. You want to come back and look at the soil in the back? And I go, sure, we go in the backyard. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was kind of really interesting that there was that much interest. And I think it was because people had experienced it. I mean, people have more contact with soil in urban areas than they do in rural areas. You know, you're really close. You're right on top of your lawn. And mm -hmm. I also think that maybe it's more of a fascination because it's not so abrupt, the outdoors. So it's yeah. more like a commodity yeah. to be enjoying it and be experiencing it. And I think that's interesting to bring agriculture back into cities because not only is it beneficial to the community, but these cities are like pollutant hotspots, you know, yeah. but we have a lot of our population that lives here. Right. So I don't think it would be that hard to just combat that by putting green roofs on every building. No, like, it, and it makes sense, right? I mean, the idea of, you know, solar panels and, and you know, vertical agriculture and w working on some sort of a plant growth facility, whatever, it could be a, a hoop house or something. Right. But, but the point is, I think what was interesting was we just didn't have a lot of experience in urban systems. So like I, I had done the soil survey of New York City, got involved in one in San Francisco. And then when I did Denver, the issues were really different because people mm. were saying, wow, you know, I can't grow my tomatoes because there's heavy metals all over. And I'd yeah. say, well, where did you hear that from? And they would say, well, you know, I heard this. And so there was a lot of anecdotal sorts of things and myths. And so we went out and we showed them, we did this data, we talked about it. And we said, no, these soils are actually really quite good. Don't get me wrong. There were some cleanup problems down in Denver, but I think people want to know about their land. Yeah. You know, when I was teaching global environmental sustainability, I always get up and do the old hippie thing and say, hey, man, we got to get back to the land, man, <laughs> you know, right? And so you do that. And it's like, I think people in urban places want to know what the land is like. It's that such a natural on. thing. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like you just, you want to be grounded, right? right? You just, you know. and It's your environment, your home. It smells good. Yeah. And your kids play in it and, you know, and hopefully they don't eat it. So I think, you know, having that experience down in Denver, I kept thinking, you know, the spur thing might work, you know, because people are really interested in food systems now, particularly when you start thinking about people looked at the pandemic and they said, well, how did I run out of dry beans and rice at Whole Foods? They go, well, some issues, you know, right. agriculture is not just growing it, it's packaging it, it's shipping it, it's making sure it's safe, right? There's a lot to it. I think people became more aware of it. I hope yeah. so. Yeah, I do too. And I think that the same thing with soils. I think soils are really hard to understand. I've been doing it for 40 years and I still don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, I'm really working hard to really understand soils. And it's not an easy system to understand. It's very complex, but there's so much opportunity for figuring it out, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the fun part of it is like seeing new methods and new people and new ideas. And yeah, it's all like outer this. space. 
You know, it is. But it's, it's like, interconnected with everything. I heard this great comment from a guy named Gary Spazito, who happened to be at Berkeley as well. And Gary had called it the Inland Ocean. And there's like really cool things about soils. Like, you know, if you took all the water in the soils of North America, it's more water that's flowing out of all the rivers around the planet. You know, it's like there's some really interesting aspects of soils. And this idea that there's just these massive things that we're still trying to characterize and manage and live with. And it impacts almost every aspect of our existence, you know, yeah. which is really kind of cool. Well, I mean, it's cool from the standpoint that we are fortunate enough to study it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're nerds know, we about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not yeah. cool when it's depleted. No. And, uh, and we all well, I mean, the other thing, too, is one of my real interests in soils is the idea of soil degradation. Like, I mean, I really feel like, particularly now, not only in the Anthropocene, but just under the, the guise of climate change, it's really hard to imagine that we're going to do better when we have more droughts, more intense droughts, more intense rainstorms, those sorts of things. That's, that's sort of scary on some level. Yeah. You know? You know, on that, maybe jumping back a little bit to yeah. the dust thing. Yeah. So, like, what would be the implication for the system that the dust is leaving? Like, in the case of the Fraser Experimental Forest, the paper had mentioned that it was, a lot of it was posited to come from the Colorado Plateau. Yeah. You also mentioned the Gobi Desert. Mm -hmm. Are those systems, like, getting completely depleted of nutrients, or is it just part of the process? Well, you know, erosion is a natural process, and, and I think it's a part of the evolution of the soil. There are erosional cycles, there were depositional cycles, there were weathering cycles, there, you know, all those things that you studied in pedology. I think the challenge we have now is that there's so much land use around the planet that's really shifting the conversation. So, you know, when there's grazing or when there's cultured systems that are plowed or construction and all those things, there just happens to be a lot more dust in the atmosphere now. We know that. Mm -hmm. But places like the Gobi Desert and Colorado Plateau, yeah, I mean, they're in an erosive phase. I mean, everything is sort of blowing around. San Luis Valley, you know, it's dust heaven. If you want to see a lot of dust go down there, the dust project we're working on now is actually out of the One Health program here at CSU. Oh, interesting. And it's actually looking at the microbiome of the dust. So how many microbes can a dust event carry? There is not enough data at this point to answer that question. However, a conservative estimate of 10,000 microbes per gram of soil suggests that 1 million tons of dust would contain 10 quadrillion, which is 10 to the 16th, microbes. What types of microbes are in the dust? Bacteria, fungi, and viruses, some of them capable of causing disease, and some of them are common to many environments. Also, to hear more about viruses, check out our episode with our friend, Josue Ramos Rodriguez, who actually just published a paper about the mechanistic underpinnings of microbial and viral metabolism and how they impact carbon and nitrogen cycling in a freshwater river. We will put a link to his research in our show notes. In a study conducted by the U.S. Department of the Interior and the U.S. Geological Survey to identify microbes, bacteria, fungi, viruses transported across the Atlantic in African soil dust, each year millions of tons of desert dust blow off the West African coast and ride the trade winds across the ocean, affecting the Caribbean as well as the southeastern United States. Florida receives about 50% of the dust from Africa, while the rest may range as far north as Maine or as far west as Colorado. Atmospheric transport of dust from northwest Africa to the western Atlantic Ocean region may be responsible for a number of environmental hazards, including the demise of Caribbean corals, red tides, amphibian diseases, increased occurrence of asthma in humans, and oxygen depletion, also known as eutrophication in estuaries. And the genetics and the DNA viruses, bacteria. A whole nother you know, world. It's a whole nother world. And what's interesting that I didn't know was that when you're looking at aerosolic transported materials, there are just these 
bacteria flying around up there, right? I'm always thinking that they're attached to soil, but and they are in some cases, but yeah. a lot of times they're just up in the atmosphere. When they're moving, just they're probably... Floating, huh? Yeah, free-floating bacteria and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So there's some really cool people here on CSU working on it now. So we, we actually have a big project that funded by the National Science Foundation called Broden. It's actually quite interesting. We have you know a bunch of people who are working on the genetics and people working on the atmospheric chemistry and people working on the soils and people working on the agricultural part of it. And what you realize is that as I said earlier, the dust story is really a way that connects ecosystems around the planet. And we're really just in the early, early stages of figuring out how to, I mean, how do you sample DNA out of the atmosphere? <laughs> I mean, these guys are amazing. I mean, I, So yeah. can you hypothesize that if there's more dust being uplifted mm -hmm. by land use changes, sure. and we know that's transporting nutrients... Mm -hmm. Can you allude that it's also transporting bacteria yeah. further? Yeah, okay. and we don't, we don't really know what right, it is. Right, but that's what you're looking at. Yeah, the hypothesis is when you look at pedology, one of the things we really look at is mass balance, right? How much right. comes in, how much goes out. Well, right. we're starting to get a lot coming in now, right. right, into different systems. And then you could really get esoteric and you can say, well, what happens like when you have dust deposited from, say, the Mojave Desert in Illinois? Does that inoculate those soils there? Kelly Wright and those guys could tell you, but nobody really knows. Yeah. Right. It's sure. remarkable that you know, we know the nutrient story. That's pretty easy. And in soils, we've got that button down. But we don't really know the impact of that. Like, there's a really cool study. These guys were fertilizing plants with dust. And they had a greenhouse study. And they would just sprinkle the dust on different types of plants and do like a sort of a, a leaf fertilization. And they sure. found that dust had a positive impact on some plants. Wow. Yeah. Where did they get the dust from? It was from locally. It was in Israel. They just kind of created it. And then wow. they were growing like peas and corn and all things in greenhouses. But they saw a nutrient response from adding dust to the plant surfaces. Wow. So I thought that was such a cool idea. Yeah. I think the thing that's becoming obvious is that the scale of things that's happening to us now is really sort of challenging because we manage at one scale, but the planet's changing at a completely different scale, time scale and also at a spatial scale. And I think our challenge as scientists, and this goes back to the neon, we just need to be better at monitoring. We need more environmental surveillance. We need more sensors. We need things out there kind of watching out for things coming. And I think that the idea of sensors and technology, and that, that's the project I have, that SAGE project is about that. That's Just the project. I ask you yeah. if we can segue into that. Yeah, so the SAGE project <laughs> is cool. Jay Ham and I work with some people at Argonne National Lab, and these guys are real computer people. Like, they don't have any idea what's going on in the field. We're, we're going to have to beg Dr. Ham to get on here, too. Oh, Jay's great. Talk to us about some yeah. of the, his and so projects. We get started with these guys, and it's about the idea of artificial intelligence and sensors talking to each other. And so Jay and I are working with them and they're deploying a lot of Jay sensors and some of my team is deploying different sorts of sensors from the NEON Observatory. And it's really looking at edge computing. So you can actually get real-time data. You can sit down and sort of sit at your computer and look at an anemometer looking at wind speed and stuff that's, you know, oh, real-time. So, yeah. so cool. <laughs> sort of creating a network of sensors right. across the entire continent. And I yeah. think, like you were saying, that's going to help spread awareness of environmental issues because each different agency doesn't have to do their own observation. Right. We're sharing the load because it's going to take. That's the really, I think, the, one yeah. of the more important things that we've been talking about is that this idea, first of all, we have access to enormous amount of data. And as scientists, we need to be very responsible and ethical with what we put on the internet and the things that we produce and companies we work with. And it's a challenging time for people because, you know, everybody wants a quick answer. And I think we need to really control the narrative as scientists and say, this is ready for consumption. This is not ready for consumption. That's our responsibility. So what's interesting is that we get to work with people like that. Like yeah. I never would have talked to a computer scientist before. When I was in school, I'd go see somebody 
help me with this, help me with this, help me with this, but never really engage them. And a part of the Neon Observatory and part of all these other big observatories is getting mathematicians to work with biologists, to work with geochemists, to work with climatologists, right? Like that. Pulling together all the disciplines. Yeah. And I think what's really cool about pedology is you can just be reckless with boundaries. You don't have to worry about, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like I am really reckless. I work with everybody, you yeah. know, like these guys in, in Oregon National Lab, I never would have talked to these guys, you know, yeah. but we work together because they become really interested in soil and sensors and things. Like Jay and I have this way of putting these sensors in it, and these guys are saying, oh, you don't have to do that. You can do this, you right. know, and it's just, it's amazing. Workflow. That yeah, it is. It yeah. is. It different is. perspectives and, and you wouldn't think yeah. of normally. Yeah. And, and it creates new positions and new disciplines are created. Yeah. And taking everyone's strengths and then streamlining that. Yeah. There's the old saying that, you know, that there's real richness at the edges of ecosystems, right? I mean, that's where you see the highest biodiversity. And it really is true. You know, the intellectual ecosystems, when they overlap, it's really important. And, and the thing with soils is we, we get to do that a lot. Yeah. And so. another cool thing about NEON is they offer workshops and oh, yeah. like educational videos on how to start working with this data, how to model. And again, this is all free information. If you have interest in it, they're available. Yeah. And I think that's our responsibility. I think the federal agencies are holding us more accountable for those sorts of things. Like, I really appreciate that. Oh, I do too. I think if we're going to be training the next generation of scientists, we've got to make sure that we train them right. and not just put a paper out. Not just leave them with this right. mess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> yeah, because I do think that that's kind of this idea of being responsible and ethical yeah. with what we're doing. I mean, this is the public's money. Right. And so... I was thinking of something funny today, but I'm probably not going to do it now. But I was thinking like I would give everybody my phone number if they wanted to call me. But I'd be afraid that the people that really took my class would call me and say, well, that was horrible. I hate you. Be prank called. I hate you. Yeah, hang up on me. Even the, the Broden Project, we have a significant amount of the resources go to training people outside of our project. You know, right. Working with other universities, small schools. I think it's a mandate that we should take seriously. I yeah. think moving forward from what I would like to see in the future and what I think would solve a lot of these big complex problems is just more transparency. Yeah. And I think opening up education, opening up these resources is a huge part of that. Like transparency is going to have to be key. Yeah. So yeah. that people can really vote. People can really yeah. support with their dollar. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I think most people don't feel like, I mean, if you just read the papers and they're not approving any sort of climate change initiatives now. And what, 60% of the public wants that. Well, there's something wrong if that's not happening, right? right? Yeah. I mean, so our responsibility is to sort of make sure that we're providing the very best science and the very best information to the public and to people that are going to be creating policy and people that are working with policymakers. And we shouldn't go any further than that, right? right. And I think from an ethical standpoint, you know, stay in your lane. That's how, you know, science, yeah. I thought, yeah, should and be. You don't see it. You know, this idea of transparency is really key. And interdisciplinary sciences, it's a little easier to do that because I think we're creating a culture of sharing. I think that most people now are used to open source data and the, the idea that Definitely. your data is going to be available to other people. So if you're going to put it up there, you better make sure it's good, right? <laughs> or, you know, I mean, not good, but I mean, or it's it real. Or will be ridiculed you know? ad nauseum yeah, on right. the internet. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you don't want to send somebody down the wrong road, right? Yeah. 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 No, I think you hit the nail on the head, though, with that keyword there, policy. You know, we were talking about urban agriculture. Yeah. And other greening of cities, I feel like maybe that's the big thing that's missing is some kind of policy. Because right yeah. now, it's just like, if you want to. No, you're there's, right. There's no, no like incentive for anybody. No, to... I think you're right. That's one of the things that I think the Spur Campus, we've talked about having an agriculture environmental water policy center. You know, there's an enormous amount of scholarship that needs to go into the intersection of all those areas. And then 
think about all the social justice issues and, you know, like you said, bringing everybody to the table. Well, when you have a policy center like that, that allows that to happen. And to be in a city, that's where you get the most biodiversity. Well, and you're so. right across the street from the governor's office and right. the mayor and it's all that. It's a perfect place to discuss things like so that. So there's, there's a sort of an interest in that. And quite frankly, there's an, an enormous amount of interest in, we worked with the Colorado Department of Ag, it was about two years ago. A lot of the scientists at CSU worked with getting a soil health initiative through the state legislature. And it took an enormous amount of work. We had lawyers working with us I'm and everything sure, like that yeah. because it was just like, getting everybody together and saying, look, you know what? We have more in common than we do different. We all want healthy soils and we all want to be able to sort of have a living. And it was one of the few things that went through and it was remarkable. Every time I see one of these meetings that somebody from the San Luis Valley, one of the farmers who got up and talked in favor of it, I went and thanked him. I said, you know, that was really brave of you to do that. And he said, no, it's the right thing to do. You know, And that's what's so cool. I think I've said it before on this podcast, but soils are a win-win. And that's why I love studying them because oh, man. it really is. It is the best, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like I, I was telling somebody when I first got here, like there is nothing better, nothing better than being a soil science professor. I'm serious, a pathologist. It's the best. You get to study this amazing thing. You get to work with really incredible people. Yeah. And it's like really not in terms of self-importance. It's just nice to be involved in something that on some level has relevance, right? Yeah. And so you can take it in any direction you would like to. Yeah. If you just well, start the interest, start the curiosity. Well, the, yeah, I mean, the rap I give to people, I'll say, look, soil has a lot of scientific value and you can look at things like biodiversity and chemistry and all those things. It has an educational value and it also has a societal and economic value, right? So those are three things that are just sort of pillars to... And you can start a podcast. You could you start know. a podcast. <laughs> no, you're right. I think there's really, there's a lot of value in studying soil and I think life spent on soil is uh, worthwhile. Yeah, I would agree. So we did talk about how you enjoy working with other people, but what else is your favorite part of your job? And what's your least favorite part of your job? <laughs> <laughs> my most favorite part of my job is that I have a leadership that they just say, do the very best science and make sure that you can give it an approval rating, you yeah. know? And so I really... You have freedom to... Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this a long be time. Creative, so really. like I always tell everybody, you know, I want to really be clear is that I'm not that good, but I know good, right? That's, <laughs> That's what important. I always say. I stay in the pocket, right? Yeah. But I know what's good. And I feel really lucky that I get to decide that. I get to work with people and hire people. And I love working in agriculture because I don't see any difference between rural and urban. It's the same to me. People are the same everywhere. You know, and I talk to them all and I sip beer with them and I talk politics, environment, sports. I just, I'm really blessed to be doing what I'm doing. So I love the idea that I get to travel the state. I know everything about every inch of soil in Colorado. I swear to God. So I take I, anyway. That's what I've heard. Yeah. So. yeah. If you go with me on a road trip, it's brutal. People say, we have to stop again and look at another road cut. And I'm going, well, you know, it's only the fourth stop in the last yeah. mile. But anyway, so I think the thing I dislike about, I, I don't really dislike, I mean, I really want to say that it's like the Dalai Lama said, when you find something you love, it's not a job, right? right. I, mean, I feel like that. I, re- yeah. I mean, I really believe that. I mean, I don't have any problem with that. I don't like wearing like, a suit or a tie. Yeah. Agreed. You know, I wear shorts. Bring back working yeah. from home. Well, I don't want to do that. I just like to wear or t-shirts. casual and, Fridays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day. Casual every day. <laughs> casual everything. But I don't like that. And that's not a big deal. And the good thing is that I have horrible taste in clothing. So people would say, you know, you should just stick to the t-shirts and jeans, you know, you which go. is good. That's what you're known so for. So I just, I, I purposely pick out the worst shirt I'm going to wear. <laughs> and I don't have a tie that matches and stuff. But I had a, a poster in my office that once said, all a man needs is a black suit, right? I guess to get buried in, and then jeans and t-shirts. Agreed. And that's what I, I've done that forever. One time, somebody walked up to me and said, you're Gene Kelly, right? I said, yeah. <laughs> How'd you know? 
He goes, you said, you're the one that looks like a surfer. <laughs> I was wearing flip-flops and everything. I said, oh, great. You're um, known we'll for your work and my, maybe yeah, not your style. Not my but style. That's okay. But I don't see anything bad about working at a university. I think uh, working in science is a remarkable career. I don't think I'm capable of doing anything else. I love everybody I work with. And I think, you know, I'm really blessed. And, and Colorado is a great place to be doing this. I mean, I, when I came yes. here and I remember Lee saying to me, do whatever you want. I was like, bingo. I didn't have to work on And the front thing. range of Colorado, we do have Denver, a major metropolis. Yeah. And we have a lot of data scientists and technology here. Yeah. And we also have a huge agricultural community. So it's like the perfect storm to really be doing this. Yeah. Kind of and work. I think yeah. the other thing you think about on a sort of a broader scale is we don't need to argue about this. I mean, we have to see change, right? In, yeah. in the way we're producing food. And, and there are lots of challenges with that. I mean, they're not only technical, but, you know, things beyond our control on some level, right? And we have to be able to adjust that. The interesting thing is that Colorado is the kind of place where we can do that. You know, we're not the Midwest. You know, we, there are ways we can make big differences in the way we produce food from our cropping systems to our livestock systems to the way we manage water and maybe exploiting urban systems. But we can do it here. We're not that big, you know? Right. So it's actually something that I always find really appealing that I said, well, you know, if we change this a little bit, it'll, it'll have an impact, you know? And I, you know, I think that's kind of one thing that we should sort of keep in mind is that with all the despair going on, we said, well, you know, we can make a difference here too. And I think that's important. And I, I, I have a hard time with this idea that people go to bed hungry. Yeah. It bothers me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Just kidding. We can't leave on that sad note. That's a depressing part. Let me talk about something else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, not that people, I mean, I just don't, I don't want to end on a cut. negative. <laughs> and and cut, yeah. Let's rewind that one again. Yeah, well, just let me go back and say well, that. I was gonna and then say... it was a happy ending. <laughs> The fact that also our farmers and shareholders are so on board with oh, yeah. improving our agroecosystems yeah. does help the fact that we can be progressive here. Well, I don't want to say it makes our job easier, but it's really nice to have people on the same plane. You yeah, know, they're open to of, it. They're yeah. totally, I mean, there's kind of this reputation of farmers are ruining oh, the planet no, or it's the farmer's no, fault. And that that's, that's is false. Not no, it's false because I got, all. you know, I was down in the San Luis Valley last year. And I was having dinner with a couple of the guys who were on one of the committees I was on and we went out. And I remember the guy pulling me aside and we were talking at dinner and he said, you know, my dad farmed in the, the 40s and 50s and he used to grow 15 different crops. He goes, I grow two. He says, that has to change. This guy yeah. said this to me. Wow. You know, I was like, wow, this guy's hip. I mean, so they get it. Yeah, they, they know. totally get it. And they're looking for things. They work with us really closely and stuff. And so I, I, I'm really lucky. What are some of the big hurdles that they have to overcome in planting more than just a couple crops? Well, I think the issue is, you know, now not only the existential threat of climate change and, and drought and everything, the fuel prices are killing them. I well, mean, yeah. you know, the idea of you know, not only transportation, but fertilizer prices. I mean, I was driving through the San Luis Valley. I saw more fallow acres than I've ever seen before. Quickly, we want to define fallow for our listeners without a background in agriculture. It's basically a resting period for the soil where nothing is planted and the soil is laid bare. There are pros and cons to this practice, but we'll leave that for another episode. And so it's a challenge for these guys in terms of just business. And so I find that to be really challenging. And I think we need to be better at, if we're going to put these government programs in place, we need to make them easier for farmers. We need to, you know, reduce the paperwork and create a safety net. You know, if they're going to take a risk for us, we need to take a risk for them, you know? And I feel like that's one of the things I began to appreciate, you know, I never would have thought of like that like five or six years ago. Well, hopefully yeah. the Soil Health Initiative going well, to legislation a, is pushing. It's a huge deal. And it really is in a way across the divide. I mean, yeah. everybody is on board with that. Exactly. Everybody gets it. I mean, you go any part of the state 
And I get questions about soil health right. constantly. And, you know, as you guys can imagine, as soil scientists, you know, defining that becomes challenging. But we understand the fundamentals of it and we understand what's important. And for me, it's cover. You just reduce yeah. erosion. We, yeah. we got to stop erosion. That's the key thing. And right? I think just umbrella term of soil health is nice on the farmer's part because you're not telling them what they have to grow. You're That's not right. telling them really how they need to grow. Right. It's just they're trying to improve their soil, which then trickles down into all these other benefits. So that actually allows them, you know, no one likes being told what to do no, by I, the government, well, by that, CSU. Yeah, yeah you know? you, nobody so wants to hear. But it's you kind know. of like a olive branch. Yeah, well, well that and, but they're, <laughs> also, they're, they're, also, they're also really good scientists. I mean, science, yeah. they're really, yeah. I mean, if you talk to a farmer, they know a lot about their land. Yeah. You know, they can tell you where the wet spots are, the dry spots, the windy spots. So they know the land really well. And we use them a lot as our scientists. They're our eyes, you know, out into the environment. And they tell us what's working and what's not working. They'll tell you the first time that's not going to work or yeah. it will work. But anyway, so, you know, we're really fortunate there. And I think the way that we're doing things at CSU, I think we have enough people. We always could use, of course, more. But the idea that we do have people that are sort of working directly with stakeholders. And then we have people doing, you know, like myself, trying to do the bigger, long view sorts of things. I think there's an opportunity for us to sort of work more closely with farmers. And if innovation is going to solve this, we just need to get stuff out. What we need to be doing is investing in the things that are working now and making those priority. available. Yeah, and available. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and make it happen. What about the elephant in the room, climate change yeah. and how it might even be shifting certain biomes, like the hotter areas or the drier areas are moving up in latitude or yeah. something like that? Yeah. How is that going to affect? Well, the soils are remarkably resilient systems, right? I mean, you're not going to see dramatic changes in soil properties, you know, with a four degree warming yet. So there is change. We've seen loss of soil. Topsoils were down like 60% of the topsoil has been eroded. We have all these alarming sorts of things that are going on. And I think the big challenge for not only our stakeholders, but let's just talk about our, our whole environment, is that there are these feedbacks now that are happening that we just don't understand. Like, you know, Brad Udall gave this great talk on the Colorado River Basin, how the drought is impacting that, that they're not getting the river flows they had before. The natural landscapes are not getting the water in them. And what it is, is when soils are not moist, they don't absorb heat. So the heat just stays in the air, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, walking across the top of a beach sand, right? You water that down, the heat gets transmitted into the ground. So there are these feedbacks that we don't really understand yet. So the climate change thing to me is that I think we need to be careful. We need to be studying the impacts of climate change on soils. We need to see how we can manage soils. I don't know necessarily to mitigate climate, but I would say to sort of adapt to climate. Sure, yeah. And then I think the other thing is that we need to be really careful about what we're promising. And I think that's kind of the scariest part to me. You know, there's this whole idea of, you know, having these aspirations, but then you have to have realism. Mm -hmm. And with climate change, like I said before, it's not a negotiation anymore. Yeah. It's physics, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, it's happening. And you can talk to multiple scientists and they will say, we're not doing enough and we're not doing it quickly enough. You know, I don't know how that would work, but I remember I was at a meeting once where Tom Vilsack was giving the keynote, and it was when he was at CSU, and he said, you know, more soil scientists need to get involved in politics. And I was like, what? No way, you know? But there's something about being able to speak to people. We had Michael Bennett here a couple of weeks ago, and the guy's really smart. We were sort of talking to him, and he picked up things pretty quickly, and I just wondered, maybe, you know, maybe there's something to that. You if know? you change the mindset and you consider soil as a resource just as much as any other energy industry or yeah. something like that and then yeah. change people's minds as to harness that yeah. as a resource mm -hmm. 
then it's not just this dead thing that you just walk on, you know, it's, it's, it's it, living, it's living, it's breathing. Living. Like I said, the old adage is the skin of the earth, you right. know, it really mm-hmm. is. And I think what's interesting is that it is remarkably resilient. I mean, yeah. like, you know, when you think about the evolutionary histories of these souls, they pass through climate cycles that we're experiencing and they're still functioning. Maybe they're not in a way that helps us grow crops, but right. they're still functioning. I mean, sure. And it's pretty incredible that they cover these massive areas. I don't think people comprehend the mass, yeah. like how much there is. And you know the only way you do that? You dig a hole, yeah. right? You dig a hole and you go, wow, this is a lot of work. Right? <laughs> yeah, a lot right. of soil in Everyone should just go dig a hole. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they'll have more Well, you should, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the idea, you know, the work we do, the cool thing is that we get to go like deep and we see the geology and we see all oh, these yeah. things in it, you know? We were talking about cities, mm-hmm. looking at, well, how do you find benchmarks in cities, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was a grad student, we had a lot of trouble finding benchmarks for cultured systems. So I started working in cemeteries. And, you know, I use cemeteries. That's a great idea. Oh, yeah. Smart. I, I yeah. did, yeah. And, and I got into trouble with the FBI one time. <laughs> what? Yeah. Great. <laughs> so you want to hear about that? So what happened was <laughs> yeah. I, I was out there. I Please. was out in the middle of Nebraska one time, and I was digging my holes in a cemetery. I had permission. And my professor and I had long hair and everything, and like an old hippie or something. So I was out there digging <laughs> this hole. And we got done, brought the samples back and disappeared. You know, we, we shipped them from Lincoln, Nebraska, and we sent them back to Berkeley. Like a month later, I get a call and somebody says, this is the FBI. And I said, yes. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it's just Gene Kelly. I go, no, yeah, he's not exactly. here right now. You know, can I take a message? <laughs> so it turns out that there was somebody missing. And so the FBI was looking for a missing oh, person and they kept finding goodness. these open graves all over this part of Nebraska, <laughs> which were happened to be oh, my soil pits. And so they couldn't get a hold of anybody to tell them that was a PhD project, that this guy was digging these pits out. And they were abandoned cemeteries. They were not, okay. these are what they call pioneer cemeteries. Sure. So there were like one or two headstones in it. And then Gross. what would happen was when somebody would die of consumption, you bury grandma and grandpa in the back and then you move to the city. But the cool part is that they would fence them off. It's sort of a nice uh, sort of story that soils are sacred. So nobody messes with them, right? Yeah. The people buried there, nobody's going to mess with that soil, Absolutely. right? So we have it fenced off. So Virgin I would always soil. say soils are sacred, right? Yeah. So anyway, the story was the FBI was looking for me because they couldn't find this long hair <laughs> and his blonde counterpart. Ron had blonde hair. So we were, we were you know, dashing around the Midwest, digging holes in these cemeteries. So it turns out the FBI brought out like 20 agents to redig <sighs> the pits. Oh my oh. gosh. So they dug them, and that the guy said, "Great movie." Well, the guy said to me, "If I ever see you, I'm going to arrest you." Because <laughs> you know, he said we were out there in our suits and ties, you know, digging these holes and and some graduate students' project. So I have newspaper articles. I mean, it was pretty. That pretty sounds funny. like a movie. To it could have yeah, been really. Could that be. could be your next project. <laughs> yeah, Gene. but anyway, I guess my point was was that soils give us a lot in different places. Like you go to yeah. a cemetery, you find something different. Maybe even sentimental. Well, and they are sacred. Yeah. And we worked over in the Hawaiian Islands and we couldn't find any places where there were native soils and we looked under fences. Mm. So we'd pick up a fence and move it and hey, then under houses. Right. So just that kind of thing. I mean, the idea of understanding soils in nature, but they just contain so much information about our past, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for coming to talk to us. Uh, FBI wanted... <laughs> Gene Kelly. I, I'm going to be hiding in my <laughs> office this afternoon. No, it's an honor to be here. I, it was I'm, so much fun. I was actually really jealous that you didn't ask me first. To tell, no, I'm just kidding. I was you just were that, hard to get a hold of. I know, and I'm just kidding. No, I'm I'm just kidding. Just, no but I, um, I think this is a great... If you'd like to come back anytime, we can even bring other guests in here with you. and Whatever you guys want. It's cool, up to you guys. No, it's good. And, and I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be here with Swell Scientists. It yes, well, thanks for leading honor. the way. It was an honor having you here. Thank you so much. 
Gene Kelly, folks. Thank you. <laughs> oh, real quick. Do you want to yeah. maybe throw down any... Contact info? Yeah, contact info. Oh, yeah. Info okay. Uh, Should I give my cell phone number out or is that probably... No. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. I give my email, Eugene, E-U-G-E-N-E dot Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y at colostate.edu. I have a website for my research program in the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences. I also have another one in the Agricultural Experiment Station, Spur Campus. There's some information about that online. But anyway, listen, I thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll we'll insert links in our show notes. Yeah, that'd be super. Thank you. And if you need anything else, let's just uh, reach out to me and I'm available. Awesome. All right. Thanks again. Thanks again for Gene Kelly to coming out to the podcast and talking with us. If you're interested in learning more or following our other episodes, feel free to check out our Instagram at Soylent Green Podcast. Also, guys, we want to do a Q&A episode. So if you have any questions about any of our guests or just any topics that you want to bring up, you can email us also at soilentgreenpodcast at gmail.com or message us on Instagram.